0: welcome back to the Rupa Subramania show here in Ottawa it's finally starting to feel like fall and I hope everybody had a wonderful Remembrance Day honoring all of those brave men and women who uh, fought for our uh, fought in many cases died uh, to protect our freedoms Another challenge to our freedom is in the news in the form of the public inquiry into the Draconian Emergencies Act imposed by the Justin Trudeau uh, minority government uh, to break up a um, a peaceful civil disobedience protest here in Ottawa. Of course, that being the Freedom Convoy protest from earlier this year. Now, we've talked about the inquiry on the show before, but today we're going to dig deeper into what we've learned over the last few weeks about whether uh, the Trudeau government actually had a legitimate reason to impose an emergency. Spoiler alert, I don't think so. And I've written about this quite extensively uh, in my National Post columns, but I'm not a lawyer. So today we actually have a lawyer um, uh, who knows more than a little bit about the subject. Uh, please welcome Ryan Alford to the show. He's a professor at Bora uh, un- uh, Faculty of Law at Lake- Lakehead University and senior fellow at McDonnell Laurier Institute. He's been following the inquiry pretty closely, and I'm really looking forward to his insights, and I hope you're too. So, welcome Ryan to the show. Thanks for joining me and all of our viewers. I wanted to first start by asking you, Ryan, uh, if you could give me a summary of what we've learned uh, from the inquiry so far. Uh, From your point of view, have we learned things from the inquiry that we did not already know, for example? Or has the inquiry perhaps reinforced the thinking that many of us have had, uh, that the protest was not dangerous, was not a national security threat, and that the Trudeau government um, had uh, no real justification for invoking the Emergencies Act, Uh, uh, something that has been invoked only the fourth time in Canada's history?
1: Uh, Well, it's a good question. I think that I will give you a perspective from the legal angle, because my question was always about whether or not there could be any reasonable basis for invoking the Emergencies Act. And you have to remember that that's a little bit more flexible or perhaps deferential to the government, Mm -hmm. because it's not a question of Was there, in fact, the kind of specified threat, but whether or not there was a reasonable basis to think that there was. And it was very interesting to hear right away at the beginning of the inquiry, the Commissioner Rulo was quite clear on the fact that the government was trying to change the mandate of the inquiry. Um, It's very clear that what the statute requires is a very detailed, precise attention to that particular legal question. But what the prime minister tried to do, and you can see this in the ordering council that set up the commission, uh, he said, well, look at all of these circumstances. Let's talk about all of these things that went on, such that we that we ran the risk of losing sight of that very particular legal question. And that's the important question, because it's about whether or not the government complies with the law. Mm-hmm. We're talking right now about whether or not the convoy violated the laws, right? Yeah. In, in some cases, bylaws, related right. Right, to noise, right to traffic, related to parking.
0: Mm-hmm. We're
1: talking in this inquiry, more particularly about whether the government of canada respected the constitution and to answer that question decisively we have to zero in with very precise focus on this question of whether or not they met the threshold not just of an emergency but of a public order emergency and we've learned quite a lot about that um right away at the beginning a lot of people including me tried to put that question right at the forefront and so sometimes people will be surprised when they see particular loyals. I'll, I'll just mention uh, Brendan Miller for the convoy. Mm-hmm. Um, he'll often ask this question of whether or not, a sort of a four-point question, about whether or not there was an attempt by the protesters to overthrow the government of Canada, whether there was foreign support, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not there was um, in, an intent to align yourself or actually to promote serious violence. And you'll have all these witnesses the OPP, the Ottawa police, and then lately CSIS, answering no to each of those four questions. What he's doing is he's establishing that the police were telling the government that they didn't think the statutory preconditions for invoking the Emergencies Act existed. So now we're getting closer and closer to the question that the government wants to avoid answering, which is how did you form your belief when everybody was telling you that there was no evidence that any of these statutory preconditions have been met. How did you form your belief Uh such that you can now say that it's a reasonable belief, that in fact, the convoy met the threshold for a threat to the security of Canada such that you can declare a public order emergency.
0: Interesting. So you mentioned something interesting earlier, uh, uh, very early on in your comments, you mentioned something about the government trying to change the mandate of the inquiry. Could you tell, tell us a little more about that?
1: Well, it's interesting because what I think people expected, particularly the uh, lawyers, law professors, jurists, was there'd be a lot of focus on the question of how the government came to this decision. But instead, we began with, I mean, think about the first day of the inquiry, right? Yeah. You had witnesses talking about how they were being affected by the protest. Well, I hate to tell you, but that has nothing to do with whether or not that threshold was met. How does that line up with the questions of whether or not there was a threat to the security of Canada? It doesn't. But what what you had seen in the Order and Council was a direction to the commission to examine the circumstances.
0: Ah, I see.
1: So now we're talking about all of these things that are really quite irrelevant to the narrow legal issue of whether or not this was a gross abuse of power by the government.
0: Interesting. OK, um, so, you know, If if it turns out um, that, and we were to find out that the Trudeau government had uh, no solid justification for invoking the Emergencies Act, uh, what happens next? Uh, As I understand it, the commission report doesn't oblige the government to do anything. And I believe they can just uh, put it on a shelf uh, to gather dust if it uh, comes out against them.
1: Well, exactly right. But let's just go back to that last question. If the commissioner had a very narrow mandate and you saw a report saying, These are my conclusions the government was guilty of a gross abuse of the constitution Mm -hmm. that they were uh, not in accordance with the rule of law and that for um, political purposes they falsely declared a pretextual emergency Mm -hmm. i think that there would be political consequences for that i think it would be in the forefront of public consciousness that this is a government that is responsible for enforcing the law that doesn't respect the law itself right but the problem is if we have this report, which is very wishy-washy, which talks about how, well, there were all these problems and a lot of people were complaining about honking and you know there was sewage issues and the police were very dysfunctional and people in the government didn't agree, it's gonna get all lost. And it's just so much more likely that there won't be the kind of political consequences that should ensue. Because I think if the report was sharp and pointed, People would be saying to, for instance, to Jameet Singh, yeah. how can you be supporting a government that fails to respect the law? How, if, if they're willing to, to be this disrespectful of the law in extremists, right? Yeah. Um, when they're invoking emergency powers that are incredibly powerful. It's just so I could just be very pedantic. This is the first time we've had the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Mm-hmm. All of the times previous were the War Measures Act. So, so to invoke the successor of the War Measures Act on a pretext, mm-hmm. how can you trust them? How can you work with them? Why do you want them to be the party of government? And um, the fact that he said in advance, well, um, if, even if the commissioner finds that, I'm willing to continue when this uh, agreement of confidence is applied. It's, it's really remarkable. It just shows that they're, they're taking off the table the idea even of political responsibility for something this abject.
0: Hmm, interesting. We'll come come to the uh, the report and what you know we're, we could expect potentially uh, when all of this is done and dusted. But I wanted to ask you about um, uh, Doug Ford, um, and as you know, uh, Doug Ford, Ontario. Uh, the, the Premier of Ontario, was summoned to the inquiry, but um, managed to get out of appearing, I believe, by arguing that it was a federal inquiry and this is a federal issue. So basically, in layman's terms, it had nothing to do with him. Um, Is that a correct understanding? Uh, I mean, doesn't it seem that Mr. Ford, even if his argument was correct, doesn't it come across as as if he's using a legal technicality here to avoid testifying. Uh, for example, I mean, members of the OPP, which is part of the Ontario government, testified. And police um, are under his jurisdiction. Were heavily involved. What's your take on this? Do you think this is a good look uh, for the Premier that he's opted out? After all, the man at the center of all of this, the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau himself, could have presumably wiggled out somehow. But I believe he's going to be testifying at the inquiry.
1: Yes, it's a very narrow legal technicality. Yeah, uh, Ford focused on parliamentary privilege, mm-hmm. so he said that essentially you can't make me. Yeah. So very simple. So, you know that the, the Legislative Assembly of Ontario is sitting. Mm-hmm. I am a legislator by virtue of being an MP. You can't make me show up. You can summon me, but yeah. you can't enforce my attendance. And yes, Justin Trudeau can make the exact same argument, and mm-hmm. the inquiry would be forced to conclude that that's correct. Um, I think that Ford just doesn't want to be associated with this. He's just worried that somehow it will generate bad publicity. Mm -hmm. Um, It's remarkable. Again, um, the fact that Justin Trudeau is going to show up indicates that he thinks the publicity would be worse if he didn't, because Mm -hmm. that's what drives everything, apparently, is whether or not the the focus groups think that it'll be bad for you or or good for you and your uh, favorability ratings or or Q ratings or whatever the case may be. I think it's a very bad look for the Premier. I just think that he's calculating that in the end, people will forget that he was even summoned. But it's a terrible shame because Mm -hmm. I think he should have to account for um, the decisions that he made. And also, more particularly, he should be talking about the discussions that he had with Justin Trudeau about whether or not there was a basis for the emergency. Uh, That would be very illuminating, be very helpful for the Commission. And he's not doing it. Um, This is... Remarkable that there is this inquiry that is addressing perhaps the most significant constitutional question that we can see presented to a public commission, and he's just deciding not to assist with it because of his own personal political fortunes.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you said something interesting in all of the correspondence between uh, Doug Ford and the prime minister. I mean, this is this is stuff that's will it will it ever come to light? Uh, Will we ever learn what 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 actually happened?
1: I think that we can ask Justin Trudeau about it. So we're depending upon him being candid. Okay. Uh, I don't feel particularly sanguine about that. Yeah. Um, I think, and, and the worst part of this is, we're, tr- we're seeing that the, the the play by the federal government is mm-hmm. to diffuse responsibility. Because again, they've used the, their power to define the parameters of the inquiry to mm-hmm. make it about the circumstances, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then that already muddying the waters quite considerably, they yeah. muddy it even further by saying, well, who was responsible for these circumstances evolving the way that they did? And it becomes this ridiculous finger pointing exercise when the whole predicate for the inquiry is whether or not the decision that the cabinet made, particularly to invoke the Emergencies Act, had this particular statutory requirement met about it being a threat to the security of Canada. So it's a, it's a, a muddying of the waters to a remarkable degree that doesn't serve anyone, least of all the people of Canada, who want an answer to exactly that question about whether or not the government respects the Constitution.
0: Yeah, I mean about the people of Canada. I mean, do they care about the circumstances, or do, do they care about the letter of the law here? Um, I mean, you said something interesting that the prime minister presumably um, volunteered. I believe, uh, at least that's what some of the initial reports were saying, that he volunteered to testify at the inquiry, um, and um, and you're 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 um, you you're, you're saying that it's probably because it, it, if he hadn't done so, it would have been a, a bigger public re, uh, a PR disaster for him. Um, so, you know, does what do the people care about? Do they care about the circumstances, all of the honking and all of the inconveniences that people had to endure? Or do they care about, um, you know, was the law actually followed here?
1: Well, I think it's a question of what we focus our attention on. Mm-hmm. So the, the real problem with Justin Trudeau's testimony is that he's going to want to testify as to how he was brave in these circumstances, how Mm -hmm. given the fact that nobody else was taking action and Ottawa was so dysfunctional, the police couldn't get their act together, that he had to step up because he's the man who's going to care about the the poor and the downtrodden in this circumstance, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and he shouldn't be able to position himself that way because the question should be, did you make an illegitimate decision? Did you disrespect the Constitution and ignore the law? Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, it seems as if the Commission you've seen that Commissioner Rullo was a bit uncomfortable with the fact that he's stuck with this mandate, but he's he's been saddled with it by the government. And there's a real problem. And I tried to point it at some of my submissions. Um, here you have the government not merely choosing the judge of their own trial, which they did. Right but essentially framing the charges against them in a particular way. So now it's no longer someone who's charged with murder. You know, did you commit homicide, right, as defined by the Criminal Code of Canada, but um, do we think that you did a really bad thing when you killed someone? I mean, it'd be really nice if you were charged with murder, that you got to turn the charge into that mm-hmm. in addition to appointing the judge. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's quite remarkable. I mean, um, you, you said something interesting uh, a little while ago, about uh, the justice being a little uncomfortable with the mandate. What uh, what gave, gives you that impression? What gave you that impression?
1: Well, you see his statements on the first day of the inquiry when he introduces everything mm-hmm. saying, well, I have to look at the circumstances. Oh. I've been charged under the order and counsel to do this. Okay. But he said my primary responsibility, the primary responsibility of the inquiry is to assess the basis for the promulgation of the emergency so he was fairly clear about how he had to do this he can't ignore an ordering council but he wasn't going to let it become the primary focus Mm -hmm. and i guess the question is i understand that that's his intention but given the way the media coverage works the way it's been diffused and how the waters have been muddied by all of these relevancies that have been introduced by the ordering council is the public keeping it straight And I think that it's really up to journalists to do that. And I have to say, I haven't been very impressed with the vast majority of journalism about the inquiry.
0: Yeah, no, it's um, it's been very tepid. The coverage has been extremely tepid, and uh, and uh, and for example, the um, the that that bit about the um, uh, you know let's let's uh, uh, amplify this narrative that the uh, protesters are um, um, you know poses a security threat. Uh, I think this was a correspondence between. Someone at the PMO and uh, the
1: issues advisor of the PMO to the communications director of the Ministry of Public Safety.
0: Right. I mean, you would think that this is this is pretty explosive, in my opinion. But uh, but there was hardly any coverage of it in the mainstream media, which is extraordinary. It's
1: it's worse than what you're saying, because they also said, be careful, though. Don't push this extremist angle too far Mm -hmm. or the protesters will push out the crazies. So not only was it a question of framing a media narrative and by the way, by recycling notes about January 6th, right? Yeah, which the prime minister clearly ran with from his future comments, not only that, but then saying if we want to continue to successfully label them as extremists, we have to be careful that we don't push them too far with that coverage. This is Machiavellian.
0: It is, of course. I mean, I knew this from the get go. Like I knew I knew it right from the beginning that uh, this is exactly what was happening. And in fact, I mean, this-
1: well, the story came out the next day on Global News yeah. that used that exact framing. And you see in that exchange between uh, Marie-Liz Power and Alexander yeah. Cohen that you yeah. just referred to yeah. that they say, well, let's see how these initial stories in global land. And there's a story the very next day, mm-hmm. Alex Boutillier and Rachel Gilmore, mm-hmm. right? Um, that uses exactly this framing, claiming that the convoy protesters wanted it to be Canada's January 6th, a thoroughly ridiculous allegation. Even if you take at face value this extremist notion, they want it to be a failure. They want it to be a public relations disaster for them. That's what they actively want. It was preposterous. Uh,
0: This this is speculation purely, but where did this uh, where did this idea, this framing come from, that this was, that, that we could frame this as a January 6th style event? Did it come from the government or did it come from the media?
1: came hey, from the PMO.
0: So, oh, okay. This th- So that, that text exchange predates the, um, the, the, the global news uh, coverage. Uh, by one day, yes. By Okay. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. That's pretty damning, actually. Um, I mean... You know, I, I don't want to get. get and it and to not
1: you. only that, but, yeah. but the people, but the issues advisor, the PMO, yeah. refers to, you know, asking her bosses, right? Yeah. Now, she's not a secretary in the PMO. Yeah. She's the issues advisor of the prime minister's office. Yeah. So, who are her bosses in the PMO?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's extraordinary. We'll come come to the mainstream media in, in a little bit, but I just wanted to ask you quickly, uh, you know, when the inquiry is con- concluded and the commissioner has submitted his report, what what are the next steps, Ryan? Uh, you know, which of the recommendations, if any, are likely to be implemented into law or lead to a modification of the Emergencies Act? Um,
1: well, it depends on the kind of report that gets issued. And yeah. what what keeps me up at night mm-hmm. is uh, a report that essentially says mistakes were made, okay. but that kind of passivization. It's like, well, you know, fog of war, nobody could have been expected to really understand what was going on. Tempers were running high. Really, there's enough blame to spread around between everybody. It was really unfortunate. And yes, probably, you know, there was probably some irregularities with the law, but you know, who am I to say and what have you? And then it it will just fall flat completely and nothing will come of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's becoming less likely given the very good performance of the lawyers at the inquiry. So yeah. just with respect to yesterday's um, the yesterday, the day before, I'm not sure yeah. where um, the deputy, the former deputy minister of public safety was cross-examined on the basis of the unclassified report. of. CPR. Oh,
0: yeah. Oh yeah, we'll come to that. Yeah, we'll. we'll so I have a,
1: just the, the more yeah, we see of this, yeah, the more yeah. focused the report will be, and then hopefully we'll have some possibility of. Recommend.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I definitely want to ask you about that unclassified CSIS report. Um, but you know, just just uh, to briefly just talk about the legacy media just for a second. Uh, you know, they played a substantial role in this in this whole mess, uh, and I've pointed out many many times that the so called reportage coming out of the of many mainstream media outlets. Basically, it was just repeating the government's talking points, and we now have an example of that, um, uh, as you just mentioned, the, uh, this communication between the PMO's office and someone in the, um, in the uh, public safety minister's office. Uh, and so there was almost perfect synchronization between, uh, and, and and sorry and and then the global news uh, uh, with respect to the two journalists that we just you just mentioned. there was almost perfect synchronization between what what the media was saying and what the government was saying. Uh, and there was very little, if any attempt by the media to probe if the government's claims were in fact uh, correct. Uh, to me, this is astounding. this sounds like, more like North Korea than Canada. Uh, well, then
1: let me add in one more layer to make it even more dystopian. Okay. When you then see the government citing those reports, and yeah. in particular, uh, again, on the first day of the inquiry, you saw the official explanation yeah. um, provided by the government to Parliament. So they're required under Section 58 of the Emergencies mm-hmm. Act to present this official explanation to Parliament as to why they invoked the Emergencies mm-hmm. Act. And the, um, the key citation for why this met the requirements of Section 2C of the CSIS Act was a CBC news story, mm. right? So they're they're feeding lines to the media. The media is taking them up very uncritically, and then these then are used by the government as the very proof of their jurisdictional basis. It's really shocking.
0: Yeah, uh, I yeah, I mean, there's no question. There was massive media failure here. Um, uh, and and it you know I, how is it that many of the country's top journalists who played their part in this. Are not at the inquiry. Is that because they were not asked, or does the commission feel it's not relevant?
1: I think that there have been requests by certain lawyers representing certain parties to have people from the CBC come. Okay. Um, I think the, the head of the CBC is a relevant witness, certainly, mm-hmm. uh, insofar as you're talking about organizations that are only solvent because of money provided by the government. They would be bankrupt, right? Okay. I mean, well, CBC, of course, receives. You know, the vast majority of its funding directly from the government, but yeah. many, many other legacy media outlets just can't function without these massive subsidies that are being mm-hmm. provided. Mm-hmm. And so did that feed into this very deferential coverage? I mean, I think there should be questions raised about this, in mm-hmm. particular, given the fact that it worked its way back into the government's justifications for what it was doing.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's really quite disturbing. I. I mean, just uh, a slight uh, diversion, but you know, I uh, wrote this uh, story for Barry Wise on the federal vaccine mandate uh, for travel, and the cross examination um, uh, revealed that the there was really no scientific rationale for for the mandate. And uh, when the story came out, this uh, journalist at Global News. Um, or, or when the deputy minister was being was he was at an inquiry and he was asked about the story and he said, you know, the media got it wrong. And this journalist at Global News was actually quite excited that the deputy minister was, uh, you know, he wasn't he didn't really have anything substantial to say uh, about my story. He was just saying that I that. The media got it wrong and she was just excited that the deputy minister was standing up to me i mean it's just so incredibly dystopian you know that journalists are actually excited uh that a government official you know just they just take what a government official is saying at face value which is quite extraordinary it um, is
1: and, and journalism is not what it used to be because no. that's that story when yeah. you have documents yeah. you know that are there w- from within the uh, the government yeah. that reveal that they're saying one thing to the public mm-hmm. and they're saying another thing internally. You're okay. informing the public. Yeah. But it, for some of these journalists who are very closely aligned to the government, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost a bad thing yeah. when you lead them to doubt, right? Because th- th- it's another real problem with this inquiry and the way it was framed right. was how they wanted to turn it into um, a basis for further recommendations for clamping down on social media. because apparently according to you know the government and they're trying to feed this into the inquiry in various ways everyone in the convoy protest was there because of misinformation like it wasn't about them losing their jobs it wasn't about the discrimination that they had faced Mm -hmm. and they testified about these things right you have their live testimony as to what their motivation is but rather there's this notion that somehow they were manipulated by this sinister process of misinformation right because it's about people coming to the wrong views Mm -hmm. And now journalism, when you, it's essentially the notion is, well, you're doing the right thing, but you're doing it for the wrong reason. It's that if you inform the public, but in a a way that erodes their confidence in the institutions of government, right? That's the way it's framed.
0: Yeah,
1: It's always in the institutions of government. It's not in the party that forms the government. It's not in the officials within that party, but rather when you cast doubt on the probity, of governmental officials, Mm -hmm. you're now being accused of eroding the institutions of government and you're doing it in a way which is eo ipso misinformation, even if what you're saying is correct. Because it has this nebulous effect Mm -hmm. of empowering the wrong people and furthering the wrong narratives. So really, these journalists, I think that many of them view themselves as narrative managers.
0: Ah, interesting, yeah. Yeah. And there's a social activist component to all of this. Right. I mean, they're so sure of uh, their, you know, there's there's so there's a moral certitude uh, with, with many of them and uh, they seem so sure of themselves and that they're trying to change the world and. Uh, it's all quite uh, nauseating, to be honest with you, um, but, uh, you know, but some of us are actually trying to do something different here. So, um, and, but
1: You can and, spot objective reporting. You yeah. can see when someone's saying, I'm going to present the public with information and they can draw their own conclusions, right? Yeah. Versus we have to carefully segregate this true information from the public yeah. because they might come to a conclusion that's somehow negative for um, some sort of grand social calculus of, yeah. of utilitarianism.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so Ryan, just to, could you just explain to our viewers exactly how the commission was established, how the commissioner was chosen and whether, whether there are any concerns of the commission may, uh, may not be impartial as it's supposed to be. Um, my own uh, opinion so far, uh, is that the commissioner Rouleau seems to be playing everything in an even handed way, but I'd love to, uh, get your take on this.
1: Right. right. Well, um, so the problem is
0: yeah.
1: for the government, they're required to hold this inquiry. Yeah. And it was remarkable that the prime minister essentially took credit for what he was required to do by statute, namely the, the issuing the ordering council that established the, um, the rural Commission. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem that we have with, um, and I, I put this in suggestions made for the policy phase, um, it's it's really hard for Rullo to fulfill his responsibilities when he was appointed exclusively by the government. And that's the party that when we strip away this verbiage about the circumstances that he's there to judge. Right. We shouldn't he's there mm-hmm. to judge whether or not the government on a pretext committed the, a gross abuse of the Constitution right. by, you know, misconstruing its emergency powers, perhaps intentionally and perhaps for illicit purposes. Right. There or, or, um I know we should talk about the War Measures Act in October of 1970 yeah. if you want to go down that rabbit hole, but um, he, he's appointed exclusively by the government. That's a real problem. Um, it shouldn't work that way. Mm-hmm. The way it should work is the parliamentary review committee set up by the Emergencies Act should have to unanimously agree on the commissioner. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have no question that this is a person who can be uh, can be deemed neutral. Right. So. He's in a terrible position because, effectively, he's subject to what most people would consider to be reasonable apprehension of bias. He's he probably is not biased, but with the person in the street, if you told them, "Well, did you know that the prime minister got to pick the commissioner?" Mm -hmm. Right, would say, "Huh, that didn't sound right." I mean, why would we expect that person to be neutral? Why would we expect somebody who's like so? so Again, and the allegation is that you are complete. You are you're t- taking legal process, you're taking all of your constitutional responsibilities um, and you are perverting them, right? That's a, the most serious allegation possible. So if that's true, it seems like the prime minister also wouldn't stoop to appointing a crony or something like this, right? Mm-hmm. That's the problem. If they're willing to engage in what they've been charged with under the Emergencies Act's inquiry, right? Yeah. It seems obvious that they would do whatever that, that they would need to do to um, to distort or manipulate that process right? Including what we referred to of the, you know, the broadening of the mandate. Um, I don't think personally that somebody with a distinguished judicial career, like Justice Rulo would operate in an openly partisan way. I really don't think so, Mm -hmm. but I think it's kind of unfair to him that he has to operate under this cloud of suspicion that comes from the fact that the government didn't say, well, we have the right to appoint the commissioner, but we're going to include the parliamentary review committee or, or some other political actors in this decision to make it appear more neutral Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. interesting uh well you know um back to that unclassified CSIS report that you mentioned earlier (laughs) um it uh, you know it came up during the inquiry uh recently where former deputy public safety minister rob uh, stewart yeah rob stewart confirmed confirmed that CSIS advised the cabinet that. There does not exist a threat to national security um, as it's defined by the CSIS Act. Uh, Since I believe the Emergencies Act relies on the CSIS Act to define what a a threat to national security is, this seems pretty damning. Uh, The Emergencies Act was meant to prevent abuses, abuses as could occur under the old War War Measures Act, uh, which was used in peacetime only once by Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau uh, during the October crisis. Yet it seems that the Emergencies Act can also be misused. Uh, What's what's your view on this? Do we need to reform the act to make it harder for the government to invoke it when there really isn't a threat to national security?
1: So there was a great suggestion by uh, Joanna Barron uh, of the Canadian Constitution Foundation I believe she co-wrote the article with Christine Van Guyen, also of CCF, okay. talking about how when you see this kind of an abuse, well, the question is, well, shouldn't it be more difficult for it to invoke? Because again, it's the cabinet's prerogative exclusively, that they decide whether or not these conditions are met. And then only after the fact do we then get to say, is there a reasonable basis? If they're right. found that they've abused it in that way, well, maybe parliament should be consulted in advance. Right. I mean, there's plenty of lead up time in this instance. It wasn't as if there weren't weeks of the convoy in Ottawa. It could have been introduced in normal fashion as a bill within mm-hmm. Parliament. Um, and maybe that's what should have to be done. And people will say, well, that's going to lead to problems with, you know, responding quickly. Well, that's the lesser of two evils if the mm-hmm. government is willing to abuse its power so openly. So I think that would be excellent if we had um, some sort of role for some institution outside of the cabinet to verify Uh, in a way that CSIS attempted to do, but was ignored. And I'll just say this with respect to the unclassified report. Um, So all of the documents that attest to this Mm -hmm. have all been heavily redacted. Okay. So if it wasn't for the director of CSIS telling the commission lawyers in this panel interview, this is what I told the government the day before they invoked the emergencies act. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure we ever would have learned of that. Interesting. But I think that perhaps he was worried that the conclusion that would have been drawn particularly because he will also be testifying in camera, that's to say outside of the presence of the parties and their lawyers, mm-hmm. that if the commissioner came to a conclusion contrary to the OPP, contrary to the RCMP, well, it must have been CSIS that told him. So CSIS went on the record and said, no, the opposite. We mm-hmm. felt that we had a duty to mm-hmm. tell them that there was no such threat. Now, here's the, the problem now after that report came out um, yesterday. How can the government have a reasonable belief that that threat existed when CSIS, who has more access to um, classified secret information, that their specialty is intelligence. They're charged under the CSIS Act with doing exactly this. If they said that threat didn't exist, how could the government have a reasonable basis to believe that it did?
0: Mm, yeah, well, that's 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 a question, right? And, um, I, you know, and I wanted to ask you about the War Measures Act. At one point, um, you had uh, the NDP absolutely disgusted with the invocation of the War Measures Act. But now, not so much under Jagmeet Singh. Um, what, what do you think is happening here?
1: Well, I don't think that we have the party of Tommy Douglas anymore. Okay. So we don't have a party that actually cares about good governance. Mm-hmm. We have someone who's trying to essentially outwoke the Liberal Party. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and fundamentally, this is just an unserious person. I don't know how people who voted for the NDP under, let's just say Ed broadband, would be impressed with somebody who brings his longboard on the private plane yeah. and then, you know, skateboards away on the tarmac, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and and actually presents owning Rolex watches as somehow a progressive act, right? It's it's absolutely remarkable. Yeah. Um, but, but for him to pull this 180 and to say, the Constitution doesn't matter at all. Like it's mm-hmm. completely irrelevant. If we're mm-hmm. getting what we want out of this government, yeah. you know, whether that's some um, enhanced dental coverage for children or what have you, mm-hmm. we just don't care if they abuse their power. I think at this point you have to ask yourself, have they mutated from being a social democratic party yeah. into effectively a socialist party, yeah. which just, you know, a la Castro, would say, you know, and this is how everybody defends Cuba, right? They say, well, yeah, it's true. You have no rights and freedoms in Cuba. And if you speak your mind, you get arrested and thrown into you know, prison. But yeah. look at the health care. It's great. You know, yeah. I mean, that's if, if that really is his way of thinking, it's yeah. no longer a social democratic party. Yeah. Um, so people just have to be very clear on this, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say that I find it extremely ironic that on a range of issues, today's NDP um, is not standing up Either for workers who are supposed to be their main constituency, or for the average Canadian, um, they they only seem to be standing up for um, guess who? Justin Trudeau, uh, including his draconian vaccine mandates and his very li- illiberal use of the emer- of emergency powers. What's happened to the left in Canada? How did they lose their moral compass? From my point of view, whether whether you agree or not, with the uh, the ideology of the old left, um, I used to find that they they were at least a bit more honest in speaking up for what they believed in. Uh, but all of that seems to have gone out the window. What's what's going on in Canada's left?
1: Well, it's it's part of a broader international trend. Yeah, um, and you could associate this with Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, right? Mm-hmm. It, it was called the Third Way. That They decided that the old politics weren't working and largely it wasn't working for them. Right. Like having the working class as your constituency wasn't Mm -hmm. propelling them to political power, in part because the working class, you know, I I think it's a it was um, someone associated with Margaret Thatcher who said this. She said the working class had spoken. Mm -hmm. And primarily what it was saying is they didn't want to be working class anymore. That we're talking about people who aspire to social mobility. Right. So Margaret Thatcher, a good example, um, selling council houses for people to buy privately. Right. No longer like being assigned your housing by the government, you know, have your own house. you are on the property ladder, all of those things. Most of the people in the working class found that very attractive. So the left needed a new constituency. Mm -hmm. The working class doesn't want to be working class in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. Or they don't want to be poor at the very least, right? They want to improve themselves in various ways. Maybe Mm -hmm. they're still going to be working for a living, but they Mm -hmm. don't want to be defined by alienation and deprivation the way the left would have it. So now um, the shift became towards, with the third um, uh, way, towards what they called the Brahmin left. So the the natural constituency now, and it's very obvious in the United Kingdom, Mm -hmm. um, where there's still really incisive political journalism, is what's called the professional managerial class. Okay. It's that class of people with their distinct interests who are looking to the Social Democratic Party to advocate for them. So whenever you're seeing, you know, the NDP or the Labour Party pushing for more restrictions, pushing for more bureaucracy, they're actually now advocating for their constituency when they do that because their constituency is the manageriate, essentially. All of these people who really enjoy the small privileges and perks of being in this administrative cast that has decision making, that determines how other people live their lives.
0: Very. That's a very interesting analysis of it. Yeah, that's uh, very insightful. I hadn't actually looked at it that way, but it that 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 is uh, certainly something um, worth thinking about. Um, so, last question, Brian. I, I know um, if this was a court of law, you wouldn't answer a hypothetical question, uh, but but we're not in a court of law, so I'm wondering how the commissioner is going to rule and. Um, what what sort of um, recommendations do you see coming out of this the Commission's report?
1: I think that if I'm not being optimistic, if I'm trying to be uh, a little more pessimistic, probably in line with reality, mm-hmm. this report's going to be a smorgasbord.
0: Okay. And it's
1: going to be a little something for everyone. It's going to be just recommendations that kind of refer to everybody, that sp- spread the blame around and Allow everybody to say, well, yes, the real problem was this. Nobody will be completely satisfied and everybody will have something that they can point to. You know, well, actually, the salmon was good, you know, Um, and all of the recommendations will seem very dry, bureaucratic and technical. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a tremendous lost opportunity because what we could have seen was, as was clearly envisioned by the Emergencies Act, holding the government to account. Or whether or not it engaged in exactly what it was accusing other people of having engaged in, which is just fundamental disrespect for the laws and the constitution. Something which is far more serious when the government does
0: it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, yeah. On that note, Brian, I uh, thank you for being on the show, and uh, you know, for most. Insightful conversation. I um, this was this was this was uh, very very enlightening, and um, and I'm sure our viewers also feel the same way. I'd love to have you back again when the inquiry is done and dusted. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be here.
1: Thank you, and my pleasure. Let's have to run now because I see my colleague is leaving the building. But I'm sure we'll talk at some point very soon.
0: Yeah. No. Thank. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you so much.